Welcome to Leaders of Analytics. Leaders of Analytics is about data-driven decision-making, modern business leadership, and the use of data and artificial intelligence in business and society. Each episode investigates the strategies, tools, techniques, and leadership required to succeed in a world increasingly driven by data and analytics. The show's guests share their stories and experiences in a way that helps you understand the big concepts and small details that make all the difference in today's world of business. I am your host, Jonas Christensen, and I hope you enjoy listening to this episode of Leaders of Analytics. The term digital transformation has been part of the corporate vocabulary for the last decade as organizations in almost every industry have digitized information, processes, and customer interactions to create a more robust, predictable, and uniform customer experience. I posit that the next five to 10 years will be all about what I call digital transformation 2.0, namely creating data-driven personalization at scale. So rather than treating everyone the same in our digital environment, we will increasingly be using customer data to tailor the customer experience to individual customer needs. Now, this all sounds great, but what does it take to get there? To answer this question, I spoke to Prashant Natarajan, who is one of the most knowledgeable people I know in this area. Prashant is the Vice President of Strategy and Products at H2O.ai, which is arguably the leading open source data science and machine learning platform provider on the market today. Their tools are used by over 18,000 organizations and hundreds of thousands of data scientists around the world, and their platform is designed to put AI into the hands of everyone, right from novice to expert. Prashant has spent more than 15 years helping organizations to successful digital transformation through his leadership roles in the sphere of technology and AI. He has made it his career to demystify AI and digital transformation for organizations and their staff across multiple industries and continents. In this episode of Leaders of Analytics, we discuss what's required to do digital transformation 2.0 successfully, how to create data-first organizations, how to use AI to take the robot out of humans, the future of so-called automated machine learning tools, and much more. We also discuss the upcoming book, Demystifying AI for the Enterprise, which Prashant and I have co-authored alongside five other domain experts. Here is Prashant. Prashant Natarajan, welcome to Leaders of Analytics. Fantastic to have you on the show. Jonas, it's always a pleasure to chat with you and particularly thrilled for us to connect on your new show. Congratulations and thanks for having me. Yes, and as our listeners can hear, we have known each other for a few years. 
you and I had a, a very special coffee in Melbourne one time a few years ago that turned into a great friendship. And I've known you now for a while. And I know that you have a big vision for what data science and AI can do for consumers and businesses alike. And in your own words, you say that you strive to demystify data and analytics and AI and ML through the likes of digital transformation. And that's for business leaders, domain experts, and non-technologists alike. So that's a pretty big statement. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do um, to make that happen? Sure. Uh, Jonas, again, uh, being in the data analytics AIM space for the larger part of about 15 years now, but it's not the only thing. I've also been leading various product for portfolios, business teams, operational teams, and taking advantage of technology in all its forms, data analytics, cloud automation, among other things in order to create better business outcomes, as you pointed it, and more importantly, human experiences. I believe the purpose of technology is to create those better human experiences. Humans have always been using technology in ways and innovation, in ways to actually better human experiences. And while the pace of technology and the breadth and depth of technology is at its highest in our history, it the essential desire for us to harness innovation and technology to make it easier for us, to make it faster, better, sometimes cheaper, is a fundamental human need. And if we go back to the oldest Greek epics or the texts from ancient texts from China or India or any of these places, there has always been this essential desire to use machines to improve that experience. So my goal is to make that real. I focus on a few verticals, healthcare and life sciences being one. You and I met actually at a bank, so done a quite bit of work in banking as well as well as manufacturing and insurance. And so that's me in a rather large nutshell. Yes, those are actually uh, big industries, but also quite um, diverse industries or they are very different from each other. So it's especially sort of life sciences, healthcare versus banking is not typically where you'd, you'd find lots of similarities. But in terms of that nexus point that you talk about, which is the technology that sits between the machine and the human, uh, where do you see some similarities across all those industries? Oh, yeah. So that's a very good question. The similarity comes from, for example, again, the shared desire for people to use data and analytics and AIML to make things better. So whichever industry you are in, whether it is your internal customers or your external customers, we want technology to be better. That's the obvious thing, right? Um, the second part of it is the various characteristics of data, big, little, everything in between, metadata, and data management remains absolutely identical 
in terms of the challenges that we have to deal with such data. So it doesn't matter what industry you're in, the data may be slightly different as you go from industry vertical to industry vertical, but the essential need to manage that data efficiently, to reuse that data, to follow principles of data fidelity over a one-size-fits-all data quality. And the desire and the need to make that data work for you, as opposed to you working on that data, is essential. In the end, in any vertical, our goal is not to necessarily convert the human into a robot or replace the human with a robot, but primarily to remove the robot out of the human so that we can focus on what is much more sublime rather than what is mundane. Yeah, that, I think that's a really interesting point of view because you hear often that people are, are scared of losing their jobs to robots or that it's going to take the, the human away from the process, the human element, I should say. But in actual fact, we're trying to add more human in those places where only a human can do that job by simply automating the menial or repetitive tasks. And so I think that's a really important uh, viewpoint and understanding for, for the audience to reflect on. And if I may add to that, Jonas, the other thing also is if you take a look at artificial intelligence, machine learning, deep learning today, they are essentially data-driven, right? So when you take a look at data-driven, one of the things that is very important to understand that sometimes I think people lose is data is not some abstract thing or even a quantitative piece that we just collect, right? If you look at how we collect this data today, for the vast majority in the businesses, the data is either created by humans or it is captured by systems that humans create. When you have such a strong fundamental nature to how data is created, it's very difficult to assume that necessarily that human influence and human impact is not going to be there. So I posit that given the nature of how data is collected, how it's created, how it's managed today, AI and ML and analytics, advanced analytics, are going to remain for a long period of time, functionally, technically, and politically, human endeavors to support human needs. Yeah, and that's a very interesting point of view that I think we'll, we'll explore a lot more uh, in this podcast. So I'll, I'll save it for later in this uh, recording, but let's keep that in mind as we go through. Uh, because the first thing I want to cover with you is uh, one of the phrases that you, you talked about a lot was digital transformation. And, and that catchphrase uh, of digital transformation has probably been part of the corporate vocabulary for about seven or eight years now. And up until now, it's involved, as I see it, mainly uh, the digitization of these offline or, or manual processes. And I think that's happened in all those industries that you talked about where you have your expertise. Personally, I see this as digital transformation 1.0. We basically make a, an offline process a digital process. Or oh, there's some uh, experience that's online for, for the same process and it's relatively automated. Now, there is digital transformation 2.0, which is then 
using the data that's collected in that process to create some level of personalization or augmentation of the human experience based on that data that's personal to individuals. And that's at least the case in consumer businesses. Do you see this trend happening? And, and if so, where do you see it? I, I, first, I agree with how you see digital transformation, right? Uh, not to repeat what you said, but we have gone from a basic digitization, right? Taking, for example, things that were not digital and converting them into digital. And in the last couple of years, maybe two or three years, I think the focus has been more on two things, I would say. One is experiences, right? How do humans interact with the company through digital systems? And that's where things like chatbots and conversational AI and portals and so on and so forth come in, right? And I think more recently, as a result of the whole thing around robotic process automation, RPA, a lot of the focus on digital transformation has been, uh, in my opinion, a very low bar on automation, right? But it's interesting, Jonas, because let's kind of break this a bit, right? Let's take a look at who is talking about digital transformation versus who is not talking about digital transformation. Companies, I would say, that have been founded in the last, say, maybe 15 or 20 years, the uh, Googles of the world, the Amazons of the world, the Airbnbs, the Ubers, you rarely find them talk about how are we going to achieve digital transformation. It's pretty interesting because these are by nature digital first companies. Of course, they've had the advantage of recency where they didn't have to deal with legacy systems. But I would say that a huge part of it also is they didn't have to deal with legacy cultures. And so it gave them an opportunity to play as either digital first or more accurately data first organizations from the get-go. So if we take a look at digital information and we take a look at who's either doing well or in many cases who's struggling with digital transformation, it's typically companies that had to go through the process of those digital transformation 1.0, and with automation, I would call it a 0.5. And I think that's the key thing. So the question is not whether digital transformation evolves or not. I think a more fundamental question is how do companies that are not digital first companies, that are not data first companies, become digital and data first companies? Because that is the key, right? Ideally speaking, hopefully, thanks to people like you and I and our peers and the work that we do, digital transformation will go the way of the dodo in a positive way, kind of like the chief electricity officer role, right? About 100, 120 years ago, a lot of companies had a role called a CEO. It was not a chief executive officer, it was a chief electricity officer. The role of this person was to help companies figure out this brand new thing called electricity. And the success of their role resulted in that role actually disappearing because all companies started using electricity. We, we think and laugh about it today. 
that we even had something like this. But then that I think is really what needs to happen. Digital transformation must be wildly successful to convert legacy companies into digital and data first companies. So much so that we don't talk about this as some quantity anymore, if that makes sense. Yes, I really like that analogy of uh, the electricity officer because that really highlights what time we're going through because I would hazard the guess that that was around the turn of the third industrial revolution and we're now in the fourth industrial revolution which uh, takes uh, all the signs that we've come up with in the last hundred years and then digitizes that and therefore we're now in this this fourth industrial revolution where we need another seismic shift another paradigm shift that requires these impermanent executive roles to come into play for a while. Now, another thing that you, you said there, which was really interesting, is there's a cultural aspect to this whole thing. And you talked about the industries of the last 10 to 15 years that are that are so new that they are essentially digital by default because that's just how you do it. Whereas more traditional industries, like the ones you, you are an expert in, so insurance, uh, financial services in general, and healthcare are, are traditional industries that have been around for more than 100 years and are now moving through that process. How much of the challenge for them is technical and how much is cultural within the organization? So uh, coming from a background that I have, Jonas, as somebody who has been playing at the intersection of technology and business and operations for as many years. What I have seen both from the inside and the outside is the large challenge is not technical. It's really cultural. And it's not just cultural in terms of how do you retrain people? How do you teach people new things? How do you teach people what kind of programs and rewards, importantly, do you have to unlearn as much as you learn? It also has to do with a culture of openness and a data-driven decision-making. And the challenge is much more cultural. And sometimes people make the assumption that, okay, let's set up these innovation centers of excellence. Let us set up a digital incubator and we will figure out these quick and fast experiments and we'll try things out. And then hopefully through some kind of osmosis, they will find their way to the rest of the organization. That rarely works because it's one thing to be able to do things at the experimentation level. It's another thing to be able to influence that culture and to more importantly build rewards into the culture right because people will do things in general based on what they are rewarded to do and if you reward people to become more digital to support these transformation needs then they are going to do more of it and unless you have a reward structure in place it's going to be very difficult and i would say that Technology today is at a point where we have multiple options for any technology. Take the cloud, for example, or take RPA, or take AIML, or even data platforms, or 
you know, workflow systems, ERP. There's enough out there that you will find some technology that meets 80% of your needs out of the box as a product or a cloud service. But the question really is, are you taking advantage of even that 80%, right? So focus on deploying that and focus on getting value out of what you have and focus more on culture than trying to find the perfect product or the perfect cloud service that you think will meet all your needs. Yeah, and I couldn't agree more on that. I, as, a, as a consultant myself, I often spend time almost, I'll bastardize the word a bit, but dumbing down the solutions because we try to make something that doesn't need to be super complex too complex uh, because it sounds good and it looks cool. But that brings us to a broader topic or question around uh, what AI and machine learning actually is bringing to business today. Because the cynics out there would say that there's a lot of talk about AI and machine learning being a solution to a large number of problems in business and in society, but it's all hype. And actually we're really struggling to get the value out of what we're building. And I do see very big opportunities personally in front of us with AI and machine learning, but I also do agree that there is some challenges around the speed of building and deploying models, the reliability of, of models, the understanding of, of what they're doing. Uh, so operationalizing them in, within our IT systems and just the sheer scalability of, of this personalization dimension that we've already talked about. So if we take our short, medium and long-term glasses on, how do we overcome these challenges across industries? So I, I think I'll break that again to riff upon your last question in order to answer the current one. Break it up into two parts, Jonas. So as you know, we have a new book coming out very soon, both of us, along with others. I touch upon this cultural thing quite a bit. So the question you asked, I think, has to go back to culture. I will come to the AIML perspective, but I would like to touch upon that culture piece first. One of the things that I write about in the book is that AI initiatives face formidable cultural and organizational barriers, right? But at the same time, we have also seen some tremendous success stories, including some of the organizations we spoke about earlier, these digital first organizations that don't seem to have a problem scaling AI and making it work and coming up with fantastic results. So I, I would really challenge the assertion that some have that it's all hype and it's really more noise and hype than it is real. Because if that were true, then you wouldn't have some of these cutting edge technology and data first companies that are actually doing a great job with it. So obviously they are doing something right where for them, it's not hype for them. It's the way by which they do business right? Versus the rest. So I would say that one of the things is while cutting edge technology and talent are certainly needed, the first thing that an organization has to look at is how do you align your culture, your organizational structure, and ways of working to support broad AI adoption? Because you use the latest 
and greatest in machine learning or deep learning or cloud-based data platforms and so on and so forth. That by itself is not going to address the challenges associated with cultural shifts. And just selecting a technology is not going to accelerate the rate of change and the pace of change. So understanding that AI and the resulting symbiosis between human and machine is going to not only result in optimization, it's also going to bring about new perspectives, new data, new results, new ways of thinking and new ways of doing. So leaders and mid-managers must demonstrate that willingness to change the existing business process and also an openness to defining new ones. And I also posit that when, even when an AI solution is successful, the desire to maintain the status quo and the accompanying resistance to change always exists. So this is where we need to leverage, for example, storytelling, right? So it's not about just putting a technology in place, but use the combination of qualitative results and quantitative results and actually convert that into a story because humans are essentially story-creating creatures and story-consuming creatures. And being able to take the results of AI, ML, and converting it to stories in order to explain the benefits of making changes and the costs, more importantly, to a business of not doing so are going to be very important. Cultural maturity in an organization means that AI is incorporated into normal decision-making process and not exceptional ones in every business context, right? So having said this, one of the key things to think about when people say, oh, you know, it's not just AI, right? Jonas, if you take a look at technology as a whole, there has been any technology, Right. If you, I remember about 40 years ago, well, I don't remember because I was a baby 40 years ago, but there are conversations from 40 years ago, which is like, oh my God, computing is going to put all of us out of jobs. And you've got these things called x86 machines, and they're just going to come and wipe everybody out. And none of us are going to have jobs. Fast forward, the population of Earth has increased manifold over in the last 40 years. Computing hasn't destroyed jobs. In fact, more than anything else, it has created jobs. If you go back a little more recently, I won't name the publication because I believe they will want to interview me and you and others when our next book comes out. But there was an article in a very famous publication here in the US that said, cloud computing is overrated. And you know, it's people don't shut off services and it makes it more expensive. There are things called schedulers and cron jobs. You can actually automate setting up and shutting down cloud services. So anytime technology comes in, essentially there is a serious misunderstanding of what the technology is going to do. And by the way, this is not just my opinion, Jonas, right? If you take a look at this, Amara's law was basically coined by Roy Amara, where he said famously in the 1960s, actually, believe it or not, that forecasting the effects of technology follows a certain pattern, right? We always tend to overestimate the effect of a technology in the short term, and we underestimate the power of a technology in the long So I wouldn't say that people 
are wrong, but we are human. And as a result of being human, as a result of the biases that come with us, and as a result of all those things we discussed previously, the impediments to digital transformation, I would say that people who say that AI is all hype are underestimating the effect of AI in the long term. I would say that an organization that is not data first, that is not AI ML first, is an organization that is not going to exist in a strong statement. But again, you only have to look at what is going on. Now, you and I both have done work in banking. And if you see what is happening with neobanking and neobanks, neobanks are actually doing something that is fascinating, right? They're going away from the physical presence. They are going away from old school workflows. They're focusing more on that digital experience. They are focusing on customer experience. They are focusing on data and data science-driven workflows. And increasingly, if you take a look at the behavior of millennials and stuff like that, you see that people actually love it. Same thing, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of certain things, but if Robinhood is a great example of somebody who actually gamified trading. Can you believe that for a minute? Like, how on earth do you gamify trading and get people to actually trade more? Well, that is the fascinating thing. And I, I just think that organizations should talk more to people like you and I so that they don't fall into this pitfall of underestimating the power of what AI can do. It is not all hype. And especially, yes, there has been some hype, admittedly so. But the hype has also been pushed by people who I think do not really understand AI and there's sometimes a bit of too much marketing attached to it. But on the flip side, there's also too much fear attached to it. And the reality, as I also described in my last book, Demystifying Data and Machine Learning for Healthcare, is focusing in the healthcare space. I spoke about this extensively and I said, AI is not going to reduce jobs. It's going to increase jobs. It's going to create a better human experience. And we can see even in the four years since that book came out that the ridiculous fears around AI have been replaced by a lot more uh, pragmatic uh, perspectives. Wonderful, wonderful points there, Prashant. And I took a few things out of that, uh, namely uh, the technical challenge of of building and implementing models uh, must be solved for each organization, but a lot of that is culturally driven. And very fundamentally, if uh, Facebook can maintain 300,000 machine learning models all at once, but our organization struggles to maintain 50, then there's probably a part of us that needs to look ourselves in the mirror and say, can we do this differently? And that is that is culturally driven. I love your comment around storytelling because when you hear cynics talk about the hype of AI, that is also storytelling, but obviously with a negative slant to, to it. And uh, at the end of the day, we got to win the hearts and minds of people before we can really use the technology effectively in the organization and that it gets accepted and utilized by everyone in the organization for the winning and greater good of customers and staff alike. Now, your current role is Vice President of Healthcare Analytics at H2O.AI. 
which is a company that produces a wonderful uh, so-called AutoML tool or platform. And I see these tools as a potential real solution to some of the problems we've talked about so far. So could you give us flavor for what you do and what H2O does and why we need a tool in the world like the one that you guys choose and put into the world? Yeah, I mean, uh, very briefly, uh, without you know going into almost a, a pitch for H2O's various products and solutions, H2O has been the open source leader in machine learning, deep learning, artificial intelligence applications for almost 10 years. And in many ways, if you take a look at some of the advancements that have happened in the in this technology over the last 10 years, H2O has been involved in creating many of them and driving the usage of those in the verticals where I spend a lot of my time, namely banking, insurance, healthcare, and life sciences. I currently focus on healthcare and life sciences, namely health insurance, healthcare providers, health systems, hospitals, and also pharma. But I also spend quite a bit of my time currently on traditional insurance. And what I mean by traditional insurance is property and casualty and things like that. And if you take a look at each of these verticals, Jonas, they all are verticals that have a lot of data. And I would say that insurance is an excellent example, right? Insurance and actuaries were the original data scientists before the term was coined. It was Lloyd's of London that started the modern insurance industry almost 500 years ago in terms of looking at data in order to come up with risks profiles, adjusted scores, and the way you had to do it was do it in a way that essentially you underwrote ships and the trade from those ships actually paid off. Though was there a risk? Yes, there was a risk with storms and pirates and sharks and everything else, but it has been a data-driven India. Same thing we talked about banking and new banking a few minutes ago. If you take a look at somebody who has influenced modern-day data science in many ways and who doesn't get credit for it, it's actually Florence Nightingale. What many people, when you think about Florence Nightingale, you also always think of the lady with the lamp, right? But it's not just the lady with the lamp. It is not just that empathy and that understanding for human nature and human behavior that she brought. If you go back and actually read her writings, you, there is a huge statistical probabilistic basis and also conclusions to her writing. So the way she was able to change the way we treated people on the battlefield was actually use data and analytics to do it well before it was called data and analytics. And so it's no surprise that I enjoy particularly focusing on these three industries because by their very nature, they are have always been historical industries. And H2O is a great place to be able to do that for that reason because of the brilliant people that work here, the great products that the company creates in the auto ML space, in the AI application space, 
and also open source and closed source. And also importantly, something that is particularly I'm passionate about, which is the love for your customers and customer happiness. Because I can sit here and talk about, you know, in the end, these are human endeavors. And the way to bring that to life is to make people who are using your products and your solutions happy, making them successful, helping them achieve their career needs and their personal needs. And working at H2O allows me to do that. Yeah. Okay. And modern machine learning tools such as H2O, they're trying to solve two problems mainly uh, within the AI ML space, which is uh, the speed of building and deploying models and then scaling these models um, to actually implement AI solutions throughout our workflows in organizations. So how do these tools do that? And what are some of the challenges that um, we face in implementing them across an organization? I would say going back to where we started this conversation, Jonas, those are two very important things because you want to be able to create models fast. You want to be able to create ensembles fast. You want to be able to manage and track those models through model ops or ML ops as the case might be. You do want the ability to integrate it fast and integrate it easily and make it easier for the various IT teams that have to then take either the results or the models and put them into legacy solutions, easier said than done in many ways. So being able to create APIs, for example, being able to create encapsulated code that has models and explainability and interpretability baked into them, managing and addressing things such as data drift and bias, all of those things are important. Now, having said that, there are two trends that I'm seeing quite a bit. One is they are both. One is more technical; the other is more business oriented. The first one is if you take a look at what is happening, we have gotten to a point where creating models and creating scoring pipelines and then managing things such as model ops have become easier faster, better, cheaper than they were, say, four years or five years ago, for sure. But the huge thing that I'm seeing quite a bit is there is a keen desire beyond creating these things as artifacts and deliverables to actually either embedding them in workflows, for example, existing workflows, so that people don't have to leave the current context of where they are working, right? I'm going back to my point earlier, People don't use technology because Jonas or Prashant think it's cool. People use technology to accomplish something and more importantly, to be successful and to get a sense that that technology helped them get there. So I'm seeing an increasing trend towards AI applications where business users can use these applications, whether it's visualization or workflow, but still driven underneath by these various artifacts that come out of AIML. So the two significant moves that I see are embedded AI within workflows and purpose-built AI apps. You asked what is the biggest challenge. Uh, The biggest challenge to date is there is still a bit, we talked about this also previously, the digital divide right? Between people who uh, have been in this journey for the last 
decade or so and are doing it really well versus the people and the companies that are trying to get to that journey with the cultural impediments and i would say the biggest challenge doesn't remain in the technology as much as it remains in adoption process redesign and change management so how do we influence that the way to influence that is yes storytelling is one way to do it but the other way to do it is also communicate measure and communicate value whether that value is quantitative value or qualitative value roi is one of those things automation is one of those things i would say it's less important than some of the other things but it's where a lot of companies focus on because it's got a readier return on investment it's easier to look at automation but the true value comes in how is it augmenting your work how is it amplifying your work and how is ai ml creating that next generation of behaviors systems and successes yes and you touch on here delivering value and i often see solutions that are very good and they're 90% of what they need to be to be really really successful but they are not 100% there end to end and there's some part of the process that's not quite working uh, typically around not the model itself but the processes that are built around uh, the model and how we utilize it within the organization and i suppose sometimes that can actually create a gap in trust between those who build the models and those who consume the output and this is a typical scenario in many organizations and that's part of where organizations struggle to really get the value out of ai and ml what are some typical pitfalls that are very common in this area and and how do we avoid getting into them i think we we touched upon some of those uh, pitfalls there jonas but i would like to take one of the comments which you just made um, and kind of address that i think again the organizations and there's there's enough examples out there as we discussed of organizations that do it well and do it effortlessly so let's look at those organizations right what do they do differently than the organizations that don't so the first thing is they don't treat ai as a black box and they don't treat it as a widget they treat it as a driver of essential business and operations right so the biggest the quickest and fastest way to failure let's start with that is to somehow treat ai as this any piece of interchangeable technology right and treat it as infrastructure treat it as for example a set of cloud services or treat it as big box machines right that's not it what it's about because the the need for ai the value for ai the possibilities of ai and the successes of ai are not going to be put to their utmost by treating it as a technology that is run by a data and analytics team or a data science team or an it team we have to think differently and what i mean by that is while there are specialized skill sets and specialized tools and products that are involved over here businesses should look at ai as a core capability going back to the example of electricity right everybody uses electricity today 
whether you're using it to power your doors or power your bad scanners or actually fans and lights and air conditioners and HVAC systems. But essentially, we don't think about electricity as a widget as we used to previously. In the same way, businesses must think about AI as something that is fundamental to business operations. And creating an organizational model that is hybrid, right, is going to be the best way. So the way for us to minimize the impact of AI is to create a data science team that is cut off from either business knowledge or business needs. The way to other challenge may be is not assume specialization is required and to take a one size fits all. So it's after a lot of consideration of how this needs to be done, having seen lots of examples of large companies, Fortune 10 companies all the way through mid-sized companies outside of the Fortune 500. What I've come to the conclusion is, in addition to all of the other things we discussed, where you place the team and how you structure your organization in many ways is going to have a significant impact on addressing the challenges, frankly, if that makes sense. It does. And that is something that I talk a lot to people in my network about, which is essentially how do we elevate data and analytics to the right level in the organization. So my guess is that most of the organizations that we've talked about so far, or the industries at least, will have data and analytics officers sitting at the executive table within five to 10 years, if not less. So we're talking here about banking, insurance, healthcare, et cetera, because it will be such an important role and it needs to have a strategic element to it. So those roles need to be elevated to the right places in the organization. I said something a few months ago, Jonas, that got a lot of raised eyebrows and keeping in, you have known me for long enough to know that uh, I won't shy away from a controversial point of view. And so I'm going to put that out over here. I'm going to say the true success of chief data officers, chief analytics officers, is going to be to get to a point where those roles are not needed anymore, where data and analytics becomes embedded into the workflows, into behaviors, into outcomes. And true success is going to be hopefully 20 years from now, or maybe even sooner if that's possible, that we don't need these roles because like the chief electricity officer, data and analytics embedded into an organization. And delivers on all its promise. And now we don't need these separate roles anymore because it's part and parcel of the business. I love it. So this podcast essentially is about first elevating those roles and then how do we, over time, embed analytics throughout the organization, whether that means that we'll all be out of a job or have to wait and see uh, another 20 years or so. But in the meantime, we'll do the job we're required to do to make it happen in the first place. Now, let's say we do get all these things right. We do the digital transformation 2.0. We get analytics and AI machine learning properly embedded in organizations. Where can we get to with AI in the next, say, five to 10 years? And what are some of the most promising applications that you see out there at the moment? So I would like to answer that again with a two-phase answer, Jonas. 
So we only have to look at where we are with AI today in order to be able to look at where AI goes five to 10 years from now, right? If you take a look at, for example, certain things such as pricing, right? There are insurance companies today that are looking at completely almost near real-time pricing when it comes to how auto insurance pricing is done. That's very important because if you think about the pandemic and you and I just, we were talking a bit about what the pandemic has done for all of us. Why should I pay $1,500 a year or $1,200 a year for my car that is sitting mostly right outside my house right now? I hardly drive it compared to what I was. And if you take a look at the traditional model, the pricing of my insurance was to a large extent based on how many miles I drove or where I drove and what my driving habits were. I would like to see that, and it's already happening, where there are, again, insure tech companies that are coming out. It's almost a pay-as-you-go insurance model. So that is happening increasingly. Insurance, I think, is going to be one of those significant traditional industries that is already being disrupted. It's happening quite a bit in property and casualty with people like Lemonade and many others. And you're also going to see it happen across board with respect to life and disability and other types of insurance. Uh, we are, banks have always been, Jonas, as you know better than anyone else, have always been on the front of deploying technology um, and especially with AI ML too. Things such as risk scoring and conversational AI have been driven to a large extent by what banks have done, including the work that you and I did together in Australia. Take a look at healthcare. It's a little different in healthcare because if you take a look at the clinical use cases in healthcare, there is obviously more shall we say, a need for more of a human in the loop in AI decisions than not, simply because you're talking about life and death scenarios over here. You don't want to misdiagnose that somebody has sepsis. You don't want to miss a diagnosis of somebody going from pre-diabetes to diabetes. Or conversely, you don't want to misidentify a tumor through computer vision, a tumor that doesn't exist, that's going to have somebody go through painful and tough solutions and therapeutics, right? So, but then let's take a look at other industries also, right? Let's look at retail. Let's look at entertainment, uh, the likes of Amazon, the likes of Netflix, and also some of these other companies we talked about have been using AI very successfully, right? In multiple, multiple use cases, multiple solutions, and they have not done it just as experiments. They have far past the thing of taking experiments and going into production, going into usage and going into value. So uh, the reason I say this is because often the debate that sometimes seems to happen is, is AI hype? Is it real? Well, you know what? Just take a look at what's around you today, whether it's in the private sector or whether it's even in government. For example, with some of the three-letter acronym agencies and others, Take a look at what's happening in other fields, right? Uh, it's real, right? It's happening. So when you ask what, where will we see ourselves overall in five to 10 years time, I have a very 
strong belief that we will see more organizations leveraging AI. We will see more things happening in terms of those multiple dimensions I talked about, which is more companies being data and digital first companies using AI as one of the ways to get there, number one. There's going to be a better appreciation and understanding of embedded workflows and applications and more importantly, human in the loop, uh, not just for feedback, but also for taking the insights and the outcomes that come out of AI and making that as a part of the regular decision-making process rather than the exceptional decision-making process as sometimes it happens today. I also see it as being absolutely embedded into every business process that is going to happen. And that's one of the reasons that along with you and other co-authors, we wrote this book, which is Demystifying AI for the Enterprise. The focus is demystifying it. Don't treat it as a technology, treat it as a capability. And what's the subtitle of our book? It's a playbook for business outcomes and digital transformation. And those have to be the goals. And digital transformation includes human uh, interests and human values as a part of it. So I think that's the reason we spent the last few months writing these chapters and demystifying the different areas, verticals and horizontals, and to help our fellow uh, professionals go there. Nice. And I, I like your analogy of where technology uh, has come from and where it's going around the augmentation of human experience rather than taking it over completely. So a very basic, uh, you could almost call it an early version of AI's uh, Excel spreadsheets that we all use in finance departments these days. I don't think anyone today could imagine doing a business plan without opening an Excel spreadsheet in a finance department, but go back 40 years ago, that wasn't how things were done. And similarly here, AI and machine learning is going to help augment our decision-making to be more accurate, not necessarily take us out of the loop completely uh, unless it makes sense to do so. Yeah, I think that the other thing, uh, Jonas, which I particularly, I I try to share with people as much as possible is people, companies sometimes, some companies, not everyone, they take some kind of an RPA solution and they create a bunch of workflow bots and that's basically a glorified screen scraper, to be honest. And all of a sudden, we start pretending that that's the end result of AI. It really, really confuses me how you can take something that is not a learning system, right? And why do you treat automation as the end goal or somehow as something that is the absolute pinnacle of what AI can do. So one of the key things is automation is not the pinnacle of what AI can do. Automation is at its absolute, it's the base camp, right? To use a a mountaineering analogy, automation allows you to get some quick ROI so that you can essentially either make money or save money. But the true value is not just automation. The true value is amplification and augmentation. And I posit that the amplification and augmentation is going to create the 90% of value that comes out of AI as opposed to automation, which is going to be 10% and less. I worked with a chief information officer once who used to say, 
RPA or robotic process automation is a tactical solution to a strategic problem, meaning we're trying to come up with an automation of a process that essentially doesn't work and takes too long instead of redesigning the process altogether. I'm obviously a very smart person. Jonas, I would just extend that great quote to just say it's a tactical solution to a tactical problem. (laughs) I accept that. Now, Prashant, you did mention just then that you and I and a number of our friends have written this book called Demystifying AI for the Enterprise, uh, which is available for pre-order at the moment. And this is your second book on how to succeed with AI. So it's not the first time you write a book. Could you tell the listeners about this book and why the world needs to read it? One of the big reasons is because, Jonas, you're a co-author. I think that's pretty obvious right there, right? Uh, Having worked with you, having interacted with you, and obviously not just over multiple coffees in Melbourne, but also over a few beers at the RSL in Glen Waverley, I would say that somebody like you who has been in the midst of these things, you have brought your perspective, for example, from financial services, which I think is a brilliant chapter. In the end, when you take a look at topics like this, the reason people should buy the book is not just because of the topic that we are dealing with. It's a very important topic. It's a very relevant topic and one that is going to get more and more focus moving forward. So if you are trying to understand how to get business outcomes with AI as a capability, if you're trying to understand how do you go from being a legacy organization or a partly transformed organization into a data and digital first organization, we have with the advantage of our experience and also the mistakes that we have made, shared those very openly. It, this is not just, it's not a book that is about, look at all the beautiful things that AI can do. It'll slice your bread for you. It'll eat it for you and other things, right? It's really about practical lessons, case studies, practical stories, right? That's the first reason. The second reason is you want to essentially read authors who have been there, done that before. So between you and I and our awesome co-authors who are all leaders in various verticals or horizontals in data science, in retail, and so on and so forth. I think you can learn from the things that we have done well and where we have succeeded, but more importantly, also the things where we have not done and where we have failed. And it's far better for you to learn from our mistakes than to commit those mistakes on your own. Thank you for the nice flattery at the beginning of all that. And I couldn't agree more. So this book is not a book for you to learn Python code and details of how to build machine learning models. It is a playbook for how to embed AI in your organization. So it's really designed for business leaders and people who are visionaries in space. It's an interesting thing, Jonas, because in my last book in the preface, I actually wrote that if you are looking for Python coding, or if you're looking for how to use X, AI, ML, advanced analytics, statistics, probability, maybe you don't want to read this book at all. And <laughs> I was very open about that. In, in this one, in the preface, what I've said instead is, 
the biggest challenge that today data scientists face and data engineers face is not experimentation. It's trying to understand how to take your models, how to take your scoring pipelines, how to take your applications, and how to actually make sure that people are using them. So uh, the, the focus of this book is everyone. It's primarily focused towards people in business and operations, but it's as important a read for those who are data and analytics professionals to be able to take advantage to learn how to make your work and how to make your deliverables sticky and usable and successful. Yeah, and I think when we're talking about the topic of AI machine learning and how to embed it in organizations, uh, there are two dimensions here. There is complexity, which is really high, and there is understanding of how to actually do it and how to consume it uh, in the business that's very low. So as someone who's tasked with that job to build those applications and implement it in businesses, and that's not one person, that's typically uh, technical experts uh, from IT, analytics teams, and customer experience teams, but also the executive committees of various organizations. Uh, They do need help. They do need to learn from those that have blazed the trail and done it other industries um, and that's where this book has lots of case studies in it to sort of describe how how can it be done so that the reader can get a vision for for how things can be implemented in a fairly simple way and the key thing is it's not just case studies from one particular geography right it's case studies across industries it's case studies across types of users and more importantly it's also case studies from across the globe yes so you can definitely learn something from that. I did uh, myself reaching out and learning about other businesses as we were collecting those case studies. Now, Prashant, the last question of the day. On Leaders of Analytics, we paid forward. And what that means is we figure out who should be the next guests on here from the guests that have already been on the show. So my question to you is, who would you like to see as the next guests on leaders of analytics and why? Uh, Jonas, thank you. I know I am one of the earliest guests on your shows. So I really appreciate that having me as a data and analytics leader over here. I would say very obviously having worked with our co-authors as I have over the past couple of years almost, I would say each of our co-authors, whether that is Bob Rogers or Edward Dixon or Shantamohan, Kirkbone, Lee Wilkinson, each of them has unique perspectives that will add a tremendous amount of value to your audience. So, and you know that I'm not sharing something that is brand new uh, with you because we both have had the pleasure of working with this all-star team here. So I would certainly say, let's bring all of them and bring their voices to bear because each of them has unique perspectives and deep knowledge. I would also take a more, I mean, I think it's a bit, I I would be biased beyond the starting list over here, Jonas, to just pick out a few names because I'm sure I will miss out on others. And I did say earlier that I'm a relationships person, so I don't want to unwittingly, irritate someone by missing their name. But the key thing, I think, is also to bring leaders from the business on one hand 
to talk about how they are using data and analytics what are they doing differently because going back to my strongly held point of view i believe that in order for analytics and ai to succeed it should not remain a technical uh, thing it should not be limited to cdos and caos chief data and chief analytics officers it should be ceos it should be coos it should be the chief human resources officer the chief operations officer who manages supply chain and hr and i think it's very important for those professionals and executives to also come and talk about what they are doing and where they have uh, succeeded the other thing which we do quite a bit in the book also is also take a look at specific verticals because i think you will invariably find that bringing the perspective of various vertical leaders for example healthcare pharma uh, insurance banking retail we'll find that the opportunities and the challenges while being specific to each vertical there is a lot more that we share in common in terms of both challenges opportunities and aspirations then prashant natarajan thank you for those recommendations i'll definitely have to get the other five co-authors on the show one by one i think we're at the end of the show now so i really want to thank you for taking the time to teach us all a little bit more about AI machine learning and digital transformation and just how we get there uh, in the next 5 to 10 years. So thank you for being on the show. I appreciate you have me Jonas and at any time I think your audience can either uh, find me on LinkedIn or find me on Twitter where I am pretty active in terms of sharing knowledge or they can get in touch with you if they are tired of typing out my pretty complex first and last name. We'll put a link on the Leaders of Analytics website to the book. So if you go to leadersofanalytics.com/ai, you'll find more about uh, the upcoming book uh, that Prashant and I have written together with our five co-authors. And I think we're at the end of the show. Prashant Natarajan, thank you so much for today. Thanks, mate.